Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and with me today is Scott Weeman, who is part of a ministry out of the San Diego area known as Catholic in Recovery. Scott, welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I'm glad you were able to come. Before we start talking about this very helpful ministry, I would like you please to lead us in a word of prayer. Yeah, I'm happy to. Thank you. So I'll invite you and the listening audience to join me as we begin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, thank you uh, for this day, the opportunity to... um, just share in your love and, and glorify you, however that happens, whatever that looks like for us today. We uh, thank you for the gift of life, the gift of faith, and we put our, our will in your hands, Lord. And as a prayer that's helped save my life, I'll invite those who know it to join me as we pray the shortened version of the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, I hadn't introduced the ministry itself other than by name, but as you could tell from the the uh, prayer we just had, this ministry has to do with Catholics who are recovering their lives. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about you, because you have quite an interesting story yourself, tell me a little bit about your ministry. Yeah. What is it that you do in San Diego? Yeah, so Catholic in Recovery was founded really based on my experience, finding new life and um, by God saving my life through the grace of 12-step addiction recovery and through the sacramental life of the church. And so Catholic in Recovery began roughly 2016 when I began writing about my experience, strength and hope, finding new life in the church and through 12-step addiction recovery and uh, then launched our first Catholic in Recovery meeting in 2017. Where uh, at St. Joseph Cathedral, downtown San Diego. Um, this was inspired by, after I was speaking on the topic of addiction, probably the best p- part of those talks uh, was when I shut my mouth, and then other people in the audience, or those who were attending, <laughs> had the opportunity to share their experience, strength, and hope um, around addiction recovery, either their own recovery, you know, the challenges or the successes of a loved one finding addiction recovery, and to do so through the lens of their faith, which in a lot of 12-step or other secular recovery groups, is something that we're really allowed to do so by in, in some general terms. You know, we don't really get too specific about our Catholic faith in 12-step recovery groups for those who are finding freedom from a variety of addictions, compulsions, and unhealthy attachments. And so it was clear that we needed to bring people together who had a common faith, who were battling a common condition, Although not necessarily just alcoholics and drug addicts, people with a variety of different addictions, compulsions, and unhealthy attachments, whereas the problem or that condition are very similar. And so in addition to alcoholics and drug addicts, we find people who struggle with compulsive overeating, compulsive restricted eating, anorexia, bulimia, those who struggle with lust addiction, sexual addictions, relationship attachments, um, in addition to people with gambling addictions, to people struggling with codependency, the family effects of an ad- of addiction, 
and recognizing that all these people were seeking the church for help and healing. Many people who have found recovery through 12-step recovery programs themselves, and there are a variety of them. You know, we know uh, very well AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which began in the 1930s and had actually at the time a very uh, Catholic influence as it began and was developed. A Jesuit priest from St. Louis showed up at one of the founders' apartments in Brooklyn, noting the similarity between the 12 steps and the Ignatian spiritual exercises. And um, so, you know, in, in some ways over time, we've kind of lost a bit of that spirituality within 12-step groups to some degree, although, you know, secularized so that it's a very large open basket. So people with a variety of spiritual experiences might find a home. So then let me back up for a moment. The program that you're involved with, and it's it's kind of a program, it's endorsed by the Diocese of San Diego, and you've been involved. In fact, you've wrote, written a book, and the foreword was written by Most Reverend Robert W. McElroy. Mm-hmm. We know him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bishop McElroy, therefore, has seen what you do and likes what you do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a 12-step program. So you mentioned that the 12-step program's originated, started to become popular with AA, but they really, whoever it was that put it together, had some sort of training in spirituality and probably familiarity with the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Yes, perhaps. Um, So Alcoholics Anonymous was founded by two gentlemen, Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson, and a, a number of people. But it was really started by those two men working together um, knowing that they couldn't find um, freedom from their addiction or from alcoholism on their own. And so it was founded based on the understanding and knowledge that when one addict or alcoholic reaches out and serves another, kind of gets out of their self-centeredness, yeah. which drives and fuels, is really at the heart of any addiction, um, that that's the solution, is being of service to others and then founded the 12 steps. Those were um, initiated and kind of modeled after what was the Oxford group, um, a group out of out of England um, that was doing something similar, but they had six kind of six key principles. The 12 steps were kind of a f- formed from that. Um, but what it really does is just, you know, beginning with step one, admitting our powerlessness over our addictions, compulsions, or unhealthy attachments, that our lives have become unmanageable. And then the remainder of the steps really position us where we surrender our will to God's and, you know, do some house cleaning, some inventory, some amends, but very much in line with the sacramental life of the church. Well, yeah, what you're basically talking about, from my understanding, and it's somewhat limited, but you're talking about a, a, a direct application of what the gospel message has been. <laughs> You are powerless to end your addiction to sin without the grace of God's input. With the grace of God's input, you are commanded to relinquish your addictions to sin, and you can do it, but only with the grace of God. And then you've got practical things you need to do, like keep out of the near occasion of sin, and all sorts of things we'll we'll teach our people. This is not all that dissimilar (laughs) from what the 12-step program teaches us, isn't it? Exactly. So when we're talking about the 12-step program, we're really talking about something that kind of took a, a, it was a, it was a Christian program that took a, a backdoor way of coming back through your program into the church here in San Diego. Yes. And, and I mentioned kind of the secularization of 12-step groups and yeah. we refer to God as we understand him or our higher power. 
a pretty general and vague interpretation of God, yeah. which is uh, available for all. You know, it's not just Christians who find who seek twelve step recovery or, right. or find freedom from addictions. And so, I believe it is important for there to maintain this very very large um, opening. But you know, as a funnel too, you know, as just like myself, I was. I grew up nominally Catholic and you know, identified as a Catholic, but wasn't so much attached to my faith. I just knew that I needed to stop doing the, the things that were killing me. Well, it reminds me of Paul of the Oropagus, where he looks around, sees all these very learned Greeks, and he sees the altar to an unknown God. Hmm. Let me tell you about that unknown God. Yeah. Here's the 12-step program. is talking, okay, we're not going to name your higher power for you. But if you want to know, <laughs> yeah. here he is. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of what you end up doing as part of... Your ministry. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've found many people who have been in 12-step recovery groups who have found sobriety, who you know, come to Catholic in recovery with you know, sometimes months of sobriety, sometimes years of sobriety or recovery, sometimes decades from a variety of addictions, like I mentioned before, not yeah. just alcohol and drugs, but a variety of those attachments which keep us separate from God. And you know, we recognize addiction as you know, this, this kind of process which both the solution becomes the solution and the problem at the same time. Yeah. And only an act of God, uh, only in a divine divine will will really separate us from that and allow us to find some freedom. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he has overcome the world, therefore we are empowered to do so as well, as long as we turn to him to do it. That's right. A, pr- a pretty big transition happens when people recognize, you know, they will get, they get into more specifics down the road, but, you know, coming to the realization that there is a God and it's not me. That's a really, that's a big transition. That's, I, that's a really true. big. No, I, that, that is very, very well put, though. Yeah. There is a God, and it is not me. <laughs> yeah. From there, we can maybe get into some more, you know, we can get into know who is that God. But at least by recognizing that it's not me opens me up to recognize that there might be some other way, or some other path for me, rather than me continuing to dig my heels in. And, you know, we if people find recovery, come into recovery, usually not on a winning streak. But really, they're just digging and digging and digging. And, um, you know, at a certain point, you just got to put down the shovel. And you look up and you recognize, I've dug this really big hole. <laughs> and I, I can't get out on my own. And therefore, you know, what's, what's a blessing is that there is this lineage of men and women who have found freedom from the exact same condition, yeah. which is often riddled by shame, by fear. Yeah. Um, but they've found a way out. And so what it is is really these people who have found their way reaching down into that well, into that hole, and saying, here, follow me. Come with me. And see, that's the other thing that, that comes out in this. It's very, very Christian. This is not about you in the end. This is about you helping other people, you doing ministry, you loving other people, you being able to care for other people. Oh, and by the way, while you're doing this, you're also disciplining yourself. You're embracing the grace. You're empowered to remain clean and sober because mm-hmm. you're reaching out and helping. That's one of the great mysteries of Christianity is that it's not about you. It's about you falling in love with Christ in the people around you. Mm-hmm. And once you start serving them, then you begin to see the blessings of God in your life. Yeah. Discipleship. I mean, it's how our early church was formed, really. You know, people had a spiritual experience with, with Jesus Christ, and we're sharing that good news with other people. It's not dissimilar too much from how 12-step recovery was founded, whereas, you know, one man or woman who have found, found the, um, the answer by self-sacrifice and service to others, really, and surrendering their will to God's, just sharing that with another person. And so you see this beautiful line of discipleship found in 12-step recovery groups. And those who have found sobriety and are commit themselves to be of service to others are great, um, I would say, spreaders of the gospel. 
So I go back to the, that analogy again. It, it's, it really is about sin and redemption, but in this case we're calling it addiction to something that's negative. And, cause there is one addiction that's not negative that we're all encouraged to have. That <laughs> you're nodding your head. And that's to, of course, Jesus Christ. You can't be, there's no way to be addicted in a negative way to, to God. You can be addicted to things that have to do with God. That's a whole other issue. Yeah. But that's the only addiction that is, everything else becomes, stands in the way. Yeah. And as we become attached to that, it's, it becomes more and more difficult until you can't break that without Christ. That's right. And that's a practical thing to do. Yeah. And if you look at someone's life who's struggling with an addiction or a compulsion or an unhealthy attachment to something not of God, you'll see this really disordered, um, you know, idolization. It's really idolatry. Whereas the seemingly the most important, and I know this for a fact because I've been through it. You know, I, I loved alcohol and drugs and my, and my actions showed that I love alcohol and drugs more than any person, more than Jesus, more Who than the you gift in of life. My goodness. He's a, he's, <laughs> he's a drug addict. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Recovering. We'll yeah. come back and talk about that. Absolutely. In, in a couple moments. But you found out personally that this works. Yeah. One day at a time. You know, it's working today. It worked yesterday. And, um, you know, my connection with others by sharing, you know, vulnerably where I'm, what's going on. And I've, you know, a new set of tools today. Pre- previously, before I came into addiction recovery, all I knew to deal with my problems was to hide from them, run away. And I found, did that by, you know, using drugs, alcohol, pornography, and lust, compulsively eating, gambling, you name it. I am an addict of all sorts. And uh, that doesn't fill me. That that only leaves me wanting more. And yeah. so you know, this this attachment to Jesus Christ does not, you know, it, it it is fulfilling. It does fulfill me. And by finding some meaning, by, you know, using my experience, which I was ashamed of for so long, but being able to turn that into an opportunity to connect with others who are going through something similar and provide them hope keeps me sober. Wow. We are talking with uh, Scott Lehman, who is the person in charge of the ministry of Catholic in recovery out of the Diocese of San Diego. And uh, it's not limited to the Diocese of San Diego. We're going to come back and talk about that. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And when we come back, we will talk about this ministry of Scott's. to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. With me today is Scott Weeman, who is the, I guess you would say, the founder of Catholic in Recovery, which is a program that is located in the Diocese of San Diego and uh, embraced by the diocese, but it's not run by the diocese. Is, is that true? Yeah, we are embraced, um, approved of by the Diocese of San Diego. But I am not an employee of the Diocese of San Diego, nor is, um, you know, Catholic in Recovery is, I guess, independent of the diocese. And we serve dioceses all, all over the country and really over the world. Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit further down the line, how, how successful this is becoming. You wrote a book, The Twelve Steps and the Sacraments, that actually has uh, Bishop McElroy's, not only his imprimatur, but it has his foreword. He wrote uh, for the book to acknowledge its value. So this is a program that has a great deal of hope for people of San Diego. Uh, you mentioned as well that it is in other dioceses and it's growing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, though, about where it came from, and that really comes back to talking a little bit about you, Scott. Mm-hmm. So 
this is the uncomfortable part, although you've been probably doing this so long, you've probably desensitized yourself a little bit. What went wrong in your life? What happened? <laughs> yeah, um, definitely feel pretty open about uh, sharing because I've recognized that when I share, you know, things that have been very shameful to me, I've come to realize that there's purpose in that and that that can be beneficial for those who might be in a similar place today. And so if you're listening and you can relate to any of this, I strongly encourage you to check out catholicinrecovery.com. Join us for a virtual meeting or and check out the resources that we have online. Catholicinrecovery.com. That's okay. right. Yep. And so, you know, for me, it, uh, I all began, well, I grew up in Wisconsin, in a pretty rural part of Wisconsin, and grew up Catholic. Cheese in, curds. It's exactly. Love uh, them. Green Bay Packers, cheese curds, uh, bratwursts, you name it. Talk about overeating. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Well, we can talk about dry, We can talk about alcoholism <laughs> as well. And, you know, a lot of uh, pretty cultural norms around circling around alcohol in that yeah. in that part of this yeah. country. But you know what went wrong is I had a great I had a great childhood growing up. You know, I was um, successful in sports, in school, and academics. Was involved in you know great host of friends. Parents divorced when I was around nine or ten years old. Both remarried a few years later. Um, I was in debate in high school as well as uh, baseball. Played some sports and such. Okay, let's let me back up for just a moment. Yeah. Because you mentioned a huge, huge bombshell in your life. Yeah. Nine years old is a very critical age. Yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters? A uh, younger brother. So only the two of you, and he was how much younger? year and a half. Okay, so close. Yeah. You, you were Irish twins or whatever. Hmm. And your parents went through divorce. Was it traumatic? I have memories of it that I would say it was traumatic, yeah. The and aftermath certainly was. The aftermath certainly was, and and you know, it continues to have a big sure. impact on I me. Mean, it was certainly the biggest the biggest event that took place in my life, and okay. one that I had no control over. I didn't want to gloss over that, because yeah. for most of us in our lives, we have tragedies that hit. Right now, there's a lot of people who are having COVID hit them mm -hmm. hard, and, and members of their family, but we have other things that happen for people just in life, mm -hmm. so... That was one of the things that hit you. Okay. Yeah. All right. And in, I sought various coping mechanisms sure. to deal with that. Mo not, not all of them healthy. You know, I certainly had a great deal of friends who helped really support me. And as the oldest, I was caught kind of in the crosshairs of some discussions after the divorce of, you know, disdain or you know, oh. discouragement of the other person. And so, yeah, I think that there was certainly, and at the same time, I, I tr do my best not to avoid personal responsibility for my actions. No, and but that's still such so abusive for parents to use the children in divorce as a weapon against the other. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, that impacted me, certainly. Sure, sure. And so as I was coping with that and living a, what I thought was a great life, I, at the age of 17, towards the end of my junior year of high school, I remember the first time I took a drink. Um, I was going to a party with some older people. Actually, one, a good friend of mine who was um, a member of the debate team was uh, just finished his freshman year of college. He was two years older than me. See, this is funny. You were a part of the geek squad. You, yeah. You, you, were, you were sportsy, <laughs> but you also really enjoyed doing the whole debate thing. Yeah, I loved it. I, I loved being able to kind of... Um, you know, stand in both circles or in multiple circles. Part of that might just be some uh, people pleasing and some, <laughs> yeah. you know, some um, bending myself to you know conformity in some ways. But I was I was successful. At it. I really enjoyed it and probably learned more academically in my in debate than I ever did in school. Okay. I really I loved and appreciated the way that it helped me help teach me think critically, um, defend mo multiple sides of an argument, okay. and um, think on my feet. That being said, um, so th just this time, this first drink I had, it was, I think, May 
um, towards the end of my junior year of high school. And we were walking, I was walking to this party, I think of some college people and, as we do in rural Wisconsin, we were, we walked on the railroad tracks to get there and had my, my cargo sh- uh, pants stuffed with lukewarm beers. And I remember a friend of mine, <laughs> you know, my friend, he handed, handed me this lukewarm Bud Light and said, Scott, don't think so much about what this is going to taste like because it's not really going to taste that great. But just think about how good it's going to make you feel. And, and that was telling, you know, I think that from there, you know, and it made me feel good. And I, I fast forward about nine years later. I'm 26 years old. Living in a studio apartment in San Diego, all you know, seemingly having lost everything that was important to me due to my alcoholism and drug addiction, sure. and you know that last drink that I took, which I don't really remember much of, but I am pretty certain that I didn't care what it tasted like. I just knew that it was going to help me no longer feel the way that I was feeling, and so that was my escape power that alcohol can bring. Yes, absolutely, and it is cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah. And, of course, you know, my behavior when I am drinking or using or engaged in any kind of addictive process, again, idolatry, that becomes the most important thing in my life. And so then everything in my life becomes centered around that, which means that my relationships, which, uh, you know, with my family, with my friends, with those people close to me, oftentimes takes a back seat, or I can become really manipulative, deceitful, and dishonest in order well, to maintain the presence of my addiction. I want to stay with your story itself, because you kind of leapt from 17 years old to yeah. 26 years old. Yep. What happened in between? I understand you had some real promising, um, you had a scholarship that it was given to you, and the, but things didn't work out so well. Mm-hmm. I earned a debate scholarship to a school in downtown um, New York, Pace University, where wow. which was a big transition from small town of 2,000 people sure. into you know, the big city. And i you know, it was a grid system. <laughs> yeah. So that was a shock to me. It was, a, it was different. And, I, you know, I, was, I had this confidence that, I, you know, anything, you know, I could do anything. And recognized, too, that, uh, you know, my, my life was centering around, I was hanging around the people who were out using drugs and alcohol and kind of, you know, breaking the rules a little bit. My, my roommate, actually, in my dorm was making fake IDs and selling them to all people on campus and then on yeah. in other campuses. And it was just, it was madness and insanity from the start. Um, I kind of got into this group with that were, you know, I, I began selling marijuana out of my dorm room, thankfully never got caught. Although had I gotten caught, it maybe would have set me on a trajectory towards, you know, correction a little bit sooner. So I can't say that that's not a good thing, but it was just, you know, I had, I had set aside the things that were once important to me, my academic achievement, my relationships with my family and friends back home, and really began just, you know, pursuing pleasure as much as I possibly could and seeking it through alcohol, through drugs, through relationships with women. And uh, meanwhile, I was just, you know, there was a reality that I was running from that was, you know, that was clearly if you keep this up, you're going to lose everything. Um, and that brought a lot of shame. And ultimately, three semesters later, I lost the debate scholarship that I was uh, re- awarded, and um, oh, wow. moved and moved back to Wisconsin. You know, I was basically no no longer even attending classes for the most part, yeah. putting things off because you know I was just you know t- tomorrow was my favorite day. Tomorrow is the day I'm going to get back into class. I'm going to have that conversation with my professors. I'm going to not drink tomorrow, but today. Oof, let me get out of today. And, and tomorrow never came. It was always this, um, this cycle of just disconnection from the world, really. And that led me to, you know, a great deal of depression. Um, I moved back to Wisconsin really, 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 you know, my identity was in kind of my achievement in many ways. And so I was ashamed of myself. 
I, you know, had lost really my sense of myself. Continued to drink, got a DUI, my second DUI at the age of 21, in which I went to treatment for 15 days afterwards, mostly just to get my parents off my back, um, but stayed sober for eight months while in, in treatment and then after treatment. Although at that time I was 21 years old, kind of telling myself I'm too young to be an alcoholic, yeah. you know, to make these changes. I was, of course, making comparisons between myself and my peers who were at that time finishing college, you know, kind of going on and, and drinking like people do in college. But, you know, I, they were able to put it away, get back into the books, whereas I was not. There was clearly a difference, but I wasn't willing to admit that I was an alcoholic, really. And so eight months after this stint in rehab and by just white-knuckling it, really, I began to drink again, which then began smoking marijuana, using some harder drugs, engaging in all sorts of different addictive, compulsive behavior. Meanwhile, began dating a girl who, from my hometown, was from a really great Catholic family. And I really wanted what she had. I wasn't willing to do any of the stuff that she did, right. but I wanted kind of that, you know, that wholesome family, the... Um, the family that prays together, yeah, and um, and so thought that maybe by osmosis I might kind of receive all the goodness that her and her family were bringing. Of course, you know, as I began drinking, also kind of alienated her. You know, there was a lot of dishonesty. I was caught in many lies. She went along with it until she no longer did. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, over a couple of years, we're kind of on and off. We moved from central Wisconsin to San Diego in 2010, the summer of 2010. And even before, right, right before that, um, she caught me, you know, kind of with um, some smoking marijuana, and I told her that I hadn't been, and that was the night before we left um, to take this wow. trip across the country. We were driving cars separately, and I remember, you know, I don't remember if I was in front of her, but just knowing that she was in a car behind me or right in front of me, asking herself, why am I moving across the country with this right. guy? And right. so that transition, this geographical changes that we make, much like changing seats on the Titanic, hoping <laughs> you're not going to go down with the ship, you know, I need to change myself, not the sur- my surroundings. And, you know, over the course of the next year, um, she, you know, my, my addiction was exposed more and more. You know, in that summer of 2011, she really caught me and, you know, just, just pulled the plug and did what she had to do for herself. Set up. She was done. Exactly. She was done. And and probably did the best thing. Her putting up a boundary and saying "I'm done" was probably the best thing that has ever that anyone's ever done for me. I hope everyone who's listening hears that. Yes, um, because that's you even mentioned it earlier when you were saying you were selling marijuana out of your dorm room for a while, which may not sound like that big a deal, especially in an era today when marijuana is is legal across the country pretty much. But it still was illegal then, and had you been caught. As you just said, you would have been forced to confront your problem sooner. Mm-hmm. And at least your girlfriend, who was long-suffering, put up with you, wasn't doing you any favors while she was long-suffering. And her putting her foot down and saying, enough. Yeah. You know, kind of the band Perry saying, yeah. I'm so done. <laughs> and that's a really, ch- that people have a really hard time with that, with setting that boundary, whether it's a family member or a friend, a spouse, a loved one, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Again, that's really important that, um, yes, that boundaries are held. It can be painful at the moment, but, again, was the most important thing or the best thing that anyone's ever done for me. We're going to stop here for a moment right in the middle of the most important part of your story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we come back, I want to hear what happened that got you to get into a recovery that really worked and not one that just simply prolonged the agony. We're talking with Scott Weeman, who has founded an organization in the Diocese of 
San Diego, Catholic in Recovery. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of his story and how you can either become involved with this or help someone else become involved with this. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope in beautiful Garden Grove, California, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and this program normally focuses on the Diocese of Orange exclusively for most of what it does, but we broadcast throughout all of Southern California, and we have our partners, of course, are the other dioceses in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And in fact, the person we're talking to today has a program that extends into all the dioceses. So we're thrilled to have you here, Scott Weeman, who has been sharing his story of how he helped found this organization called Catholic in Recovery, which is basically a 12-step program, but very comfortably embracing the role of Catholic faith in that 12-step process, which is not done in most other 12-step programs. Mm-hmm. Most other 12-step programs, there is an acknowledgement of a higher power, but then it's left alone to your own devices what Scott did was really marry up the idea of Catholic faith and 12-step program because it worked for him. Mm-hmm. And we're in the process of talking about how he was basically wasting his life. He had been involved in drugs and alcohol, had lost a scholarship, had gotten involved with a, a young woman who was a very good Catholic who he helped bring out to California, and she was finally wise enough to say, enough, Mm -hmm. I'm done, I'm leaving, goodbye. Mm -hmm. And that was actually good for you. Scott, tell us what happens. Yeah, so that, um, well, it was, I can remember it very vividly. I was actually visiting Wisconsin, and I got... You had to be devastated emotionally. Yeah, I was, it was inevitable. It was inevitable. Did you know that at the time, do you think? Um... Yeah, yes, but I was, there's so much denial that is involved in in, an addiction that, I mean, layers of denial. And so there were probably some moments where I had some clear understanding of it, but, um, but followed by fear and shame of, well, what, what if I actually act upon that? That's, yeah. then what's going to happen. It's almost just easier trying to keep up the facade. Yeah. So I was, um, back home visiting Wisconsin, some friends, actually two of my best friends got married between two weeks apart from each other. So I stayed there that week. Whereas during that week, I was, I think it was towards the end of the trip, was trying to call my ex-girlfriend, who was, at my, who was my girlfriend at the time, and just check in with her. And kind of, I, I figured that something was wrong. And yeah. so there was, I got a call actually about a half hour before my friend's wedding um, that said, hey, your ex-girlfriend is no longer going to be answering your calls. It was from my mom. She had called my mom. She didn't want to talk to me. And kind of to relay the message of, you know, it's, it's enough is enough. She's found out. And what she found out was that I had been lying to her. You know, I was lying to her about how much I was drinking and using drugs, that I had been unfaithful to her, that, um, you know, I had quit my job that I didn't tell her about two weeks, two months prior. Wow. Um, so I was keeping up all this, this facade, these lies that was inevitably going to, you know, the truth was going to be exposed. Sure. And so there was, I think that there's always this little bit of relief within, um, within us when we're kind of caught. Yeah. Um, and that's, of course, there's denial and we fight it at first. But it's finally over. But it's finally over. But yeah. I, you know, I went another, you know, I was kind of, she yeah, broke up with me. that's a little premature to say it that way, but. Yeah. So it was a, a month and a half where I. The corner's you know, been turned, I think, is what you could almost say. Yeah, we're kind of, yeah, we get ready. I isolated for the next month and a half in uh, in alcohol and drugs in my little studio apartment that, um, 
and you know was just scared and and i was still trying to do anything that i could to manipulate the situation to get her back in my life and so we had a very codependent relationship where we really needed each other in some ways and so i was editing some of her papers for she was in a master's program to become a therapist and um, I was editing some of her papers for grammar and things, and yeah. so we had this maintained relationship. And she said, "Hey, can you can you write can you edit one of my papers? I'm going to go for a run, and if you can have it back to me within an hour, or so that would be great." And so this was like a month and a half after you know she had broken up with me, and I, of course, before I began working on that paper, I lit up a joint and smoked it, and you know my got high before looking at you know opening up my computer and. She stopped by on her run that day by my little oh. studio apartment, opened the door, smelled the marijuana, smelled the marijuana, looked me in my eyes and said, Scott, you are absolutely hopeless. You're never going to change. And that hit me. I, I, I felt that. I, I, I knew I wasn't going to change. I couldn't change. I had no means of changing. So I, you know, devastated kind of just that was like the nail in the coffin. You know, there was no coming back from this. So the next day, of course, let, I probably use my... Let me stop you for a moment. Sure. Because you're talking about a liar who got caught. Mm-hmm. And liars will keep lying until they can't lie anymore. And only then, often anyway, only then are they empowered to begin to look at the truth. And that can make a huge difference in their life. Did, did that really impact you to have to finally come to grips with the fact you couldn't lie anymore? Yeah. I mean... I didn't really know how to be honest, though. I needed to learn that from other people. I'm so addicted to that as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I couldn't do any of this on my own. You know, and and it's our natural inclination to try to do, to try to heal ourselves on our own at first. You know, you know you're broken, which means you're trying to hide that. And the last thing you want to do is to be vulnerable enough to tell anyone that you're broken. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what happened was then the next day, I think that night I used my only coping mechanism I had, alcohol and drugs. The next day was the day where I found myself on the beach of Mission Bay and, um, you know, had my little beach cruiser, which was one of the only things I had left in my possession, rode it down to Mission Bay, pushed my beach, my bike through the heavy sand, kind of collapsed there and pulled out my phone, which seemed to weigh about 500 pounds and made, (laughs) made some calls to some close friends that I grew up with who knew me really, really well. And my mom and my dad, and I told them exactly how bad things had gotten. Which five hundred pounds? Yeah, exactly. It was so hard to make that call. So hard to make that call, and they, you know, to, to tell them things that they already knew. Yeah. They, you know, I the only person that I had really effectively lied to or deceived was myself. Yeah. You know, they were aware of the failed relationships, the lost scholarships, the you know many multiple attempts sure. to get back at school, which sure. never really materialized into anything. Sure. You know, but also recognize that they couldn't do anything. And so until I came and reached out and said, I need help. And I told them, I, I don't know what the solution is. I, I've got this guy's number from an AA meeting that I attended a couple of months ago. And so I'll, I'll, I'm going to try to show up at an AA meeting tomorrow. I don't know what I need, but I just I need to stay in touch. And so I asked if I could reach out and with my close friends, because I didn't have anyone else keeping me accountable. I didn't even know how to be held accountable. Just asked if I could, can I call you every day for the, you know, just for the foreseeable future, just to let you know that hopefully I hadn't drank that day, nor did I drink the night before. And you don't have to answer it every time, just let it go to voicemail. And so I made those calls for the first probably 90 days of my sobriety, my recovery. Wow. And then the next day, I found myself in an AA meeting um, where people, you know, and I, I remember very vividly that, that first meeting. And I had been to a few before, but, you know, was mostly just doing it to look like I was doing right. something. You, you weren't actually engaging it. Yeah. 
you were this time. That's right. And so I showed up to this Protestant church, and it was on the second floor, early in the morning, 7 a.m. meeting, where I was usually sleeping well past that hour sure. through a hangover. And, uh, you know, I got to the bottom of the stairs going up, and I could hear this camaraderie and joy from above, and I'm like, I've got to be in the wrong place. If any, if these people know what I'm going through, there's no reason that they're, that they'd be laughing or, you know, any of that. But reluctantly, I walked up, found myself in the back corner of the room. Don't really remember much from that meeting, other than the fact that I do remember being very victimized. I was the victim of my alcoholism. And it was apparent that those who were around, those, those who were in the meeting were not a victim of their alcoholism, but actually described and, and identified themselves as alcoholics, but not from this shameful place that I was coming from, but this place of victory. And so they had found through the aid of God and their fellows freedom from what was killing me. And, you know, to the extent yeah. where they were laughing about it and laughing about kind of old stories. And so we concluded this is, that this is so reminiscent of Christianity and people who are free from <laughs> sin. And and celebrate the idea that, hey, I was lost, but now I'm found, and I'm thrilled. You want to hear about it? Exactly. Wow. Which is part of why it's so it's it's become easier for me to share, you know, sure. these, sure. what one might describe as kind of dark stories. But sure. for me, it's just, this is my path to freedom. Yeah. And, you know, if I can share it in a way that helps any, just one person find some identity or recognize that they're not alone, um, that's beneficial for me and for others. How long ago was that first AA meeting that you actually engaged? Yeah, that was in October 10th, 2011. Okay, so and, about nine years. Yep. Eight years. And what was really important after the, at the end of that meeting was, you know, after we held hands and prayed the Our Father, which was one of the few prayers that I remembered from my childhood, you know, as we towards the middle of that prayer, a tear started coming down my eye as I just knew that I was in the right place. Yeah. And, you know, on... What happened next was this gentleman from across the room, who probably would have been the last person that I voluntarily would have gone up to and speak right. to after the meeting, darted across, looked me in the eyes, and said, I know exactly how you feel. You don't ever have to drink again. And that man really took me under his wing, saved my life, and dedicated a lot of time. We would spend mornings together after the morning meetings at coffee shops, and just sharing about what was going on in my life, the freedom that he had found he encouraged me to find my local Bible study and, and get into the church um, so that I might find some peers my age who were on a similar kind of spiritual journey. Yeah. And we were working through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Next to it was the the Bible, of course. Yeah. And you know, he would hold up the Bible and say, this book is for people who don't want to go to hell. And then he would hold up the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and say, this book is for people who have been there and have no intention of ever going back. Back to hell. <laughs> and we're cross-referencing the two and, you know, seeing, he's really yeah. sharing with me, showing yeah. me this, the similarities between, you know, this faith that I would grow into and, you know, the 12 steps that I was beginning to undertake and one day at a time not drinking, which for the first couple of days and weeks seemed impossible. But over time, um, the obsession to drink was lifted. And that is a miracle, a miracle that only God could have, could have um, made happen. So, you know, years and months, months and years go by, um, the ex-girlfriend, I should note, Never comes back. She wasn't all that impressed that I, be, that I, you know, tried to look like a good Catholic boy. Well, let me stop for that one. Just yeah. my limited psychology background, just enough to get myself into trouble. <laughs> Most people in codependent relationships, when the issue that created the codependency is gone, the relationship has nothing to really bear it up other than a lot of things that were superficial. Not always, but that often can be the case. I presume there was some of that that probably went on there. She was, engaged in your addiction and didn't realize it. Yeah. She was probably mm. what we would call an enabler. Sure. Yeah. 
And that's not her fault. It's just that, that's, no. that's what happens. Yeah. And she found her own recovery as well. You know, she did what she had to do for herself. Yeah. That was independent of me or independent of anything that I was going to be doing. It's so blessed that you can see that. Yes. A lot of people, I'm sure it probably took you a while to see that. It did take me a while. Yes. <laughs> but then there was a transition that happened where I was, I began kind of embracing my recovery and my identity as a Catholic, my spiritual walk on my own. And, um, you know, of course, I wasn't alone. I had a great sponsor in recovery. I had a host of friends in the church and others along the way who who just who walked with me, who helped shape my life in a way that I could have never done by myself. And so, you know, we get back to, you know, learning how to be honest. Yeah. I had to learn how to be honest and and to do so in in meetings where I was being v- very vulnerable and to recognize that, you know, I don't have to try to control the emotional state of everyone around me and all these different really important lessons. But I couldn't learn any of those lessons without first setting aside the drink and the drugs. Were you perfect after that or you're kind of half laughing? I I won't go too much further than, but (laughs) despite setbacks, this still kept you coming back to it rather than the alcohol. Yeah. So, and that's something important for people to hear. This is like going to confession every two people go to confession. I keep confessing the same sins over and over again. Yes, and thank God you're coming back Mm -hmm. because it's the confession that's bringing you back here because you want to come back to God. You don't want to stay in the sin. Yep. That's true here too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, the only thing that I did perfectly was not take a drink one day at a time. And the rest was all making making progress. Um, And, you know, thank God for the sacramental life of the church, which uh, helped me really recognize my, know Jesus Christ as my higher power. And also through the, you know, all sorts of different resources within the church. And I recognize that Catholic and recovery could add to those resources. Now, I don't want to go into great detail, but I see what looks like a wedding ring on your hand. Yeah. And my understanding is you have a family now, too? I do. And that's two children fully out of the womb and one you just found out? (laughs) Yes, that's right. Congratulations on that. Everyone needs to be praying for your one-day-at-a-time continued recovery for their sake, too but they also are part of your recovery as well. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Scott Weeman. I'm Rick Howick, your host. Scott Weeman has been telling us about his journey into sobriety and how he helped them create a version of the 12 steps that really embraces also Catholic faith. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you can become involved. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today has been Scott Weeman, and I say has been. Scott Weeman has been so kind as to come all the way up here from San Diego, and we have had a chance to chat with him about his recovery, miraculous recovery, because anything that God does out of grace is miraculous, and he has acknowledged fully and completely that he was powerless to take on his sin, his addiction. And I use that kind of analogously, because I, I don't want to um, denigrate addiction into so the, calling it, but there are similarities. Mm-hmm. And you were describing how we become addicted or, or attached to these things that are unhealthy, and we need help to get out of it. We can't do it ourselves. And in fact, the more we do it ourselves, the more we're missing part of the point of Christianity. We need to do, we need to help others, and in the process, beg the Father for, to help us. And it's in that grace that we're healed. Mm-hmm. You found healing. You were able to embrace 
a day-to-day, and, and today you're doing pretty good, right? Mm, yeah, it's All right. right. For the day, you're doing good. That's, yeah. a, that's one day at a time. Yep. So you decided that the 12-step programs needed a Catholic element more than what you experienced. So how did we go about creating your program? Catholic in Recovery, yeah. So a couple of years into my recovery journey and you know my participation in the church, I um, was... Just, I, I found myself a little envious of those who were making the adult decision to become Catholic and going th- formally through the RCIA program, recognizing that I kind of went just through the motions as a kid and, um, you know, went, received all my sacraments growing up. Um, however, didn't really fully embrace them on my own, didn't take ownership of them whatsoever. But then I recognized that as I was walking, working through the 12 steps and um, really embracing these tenets of my faith, which were much in line with my faith of my, you know, Catholic faith and the 12 step recovery program in the 12 steps, we use some general language and aren't as specific, but I recognized that I was really kind of re embracing the, the faith, my faith myself by working through the 12 steps, noting the important overlap between admitting powerlessness and need for a savior and um, what happens at our baptism. And, you know, really embracing that identity of um, being marked by God, being sealed by God through our baptism. Yeah. And not only that, but that we are, you know, baptized not only in Christ's life, but also into his death. And so we must die really to ourselves in order to embrace the new life that's made available to us through addiction recovery. And then working through a very thorough moral inventory in step four and then sharing that with another person in step five, very similar to the way that we approach sacrament of reconciliation. But with the fullness of that sacrament, whereas in step six and seven, we humbly ask God to remove whatever defects of character stand in the way of serving him and others. And then we make amends, much like a full penance in steps eight and nine, making amends to those who we had harmed, except for when to do so would injure them or others. Steps 10 and 11, much like our Eucharist, provide the daily bread for us to maintain our spiritual growth and progress one day at a time. And then step 12, where we uh, have a spiritual awakening and give back what we found Similar to the reception of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our confirmation, we give back and, and really dedicate a life to service. And so we can only keep what we are willing to give away. And that's exactly how the lifeblood of recovery works. And so I began writing about uh, my experience, strength and hope around the topic of addiction, noting that there weren't a lot of Catholic resources available for those who were working a recovery program, although there were great overlap in the way that we were approaching the spiritual life and healing. And then began speaking um, in various forums, you know, either you know, publicly or in podcasts and radio and things like that. The best part, as I mentioned before, when I was speaking in, in to publicly was when others had the chance to share through their faith. And people got really excited to be able to share about their faith and their addiction recovery at the same time. So in January 2017, we began our first Catholic in recovery group at St. Joseph Cathedral, okay. downtown San Diego. And that group still meets regularly. We, it's a beautiful church. <clears throat> beautiful church. Yeah. And since then, we've added Catholic and recovery meetings, both locally here in Southern California and around the country. We've got about 35 different groups um, in wow. Oregon, in California, in New Mexico, Nevada, throughout the Midwest, in Minnesota, Minneapolis, or Minnesota Michigan, Ohio, um, Louisiana, New York. And um, for our full, our full list of available meetings, um, you can check out CatholicInRecovery.com, where you can also inquire about getting a Catholic in Recovery Fellowship started at your local parish. We recognize that people search, the, seek the church for healing. And in, in many instances, we've really delegated a lot of those healing resources to secular groups like 
Alcoholics Anonymous yeah, or others. That that always bothered me, and it sounds like it bothered you as well, that why are you going to attend a Protestant church for recovery of, of a, <clears throat> an addiction that is unfortunately so common, and right now during COVID is becoming more and more pronounced, Yeah, when the whole recovery program, the 12 Steps, are so geared toward Catholic faith, all it takes is a little acknowledgement and tweaking, yeah. which is what you've done. I'm looking at your book, which came out in 2017, The Twelve Steps and the Sacraments. So this was put out by Ave Maria Press, so which is very well known. And uh, The Twelve Steps and the Sacraments, you have the 12 steps here, but I, I noticed something very interesting about your table of contents. You've got them, the your 12 steps are all listed here, and they're they're listed in language that that sounds both 12-step-ish and sounds uh, religious, but you've organized them into four parts. Steps 1, 2, and 3 come under baptism. Mm -hmm. Steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 come under reconciliation. Uh, We Catholics often call that confession. Uh, Steps 10 and 11 come under Eucharist, and step 12 is confirmation. Mm -hmm. Wow. So your whole book then is about the interspersion of Catholic faith in this 12-step program. That's right. Yep. And so I share my story, you know, much of kind of what I've shared here today, as well as the story of many others with a variety of different types of addictions, compulsions, and unhealthy attachments, and how they've blended 12-step recovery with the sacramental life of the church to find healing. And, you know, including some, a little bit of Catholic teaching in there, some wisdom from the saints and other spiritual writers, uh, as well as, you know, just the, the stories of others who, much like myself and perhaps many people who are listening, right. you know, once suffered from a seemingly um, impossible condition to solve and um, and by the grace of God have found a miraculous freedom from that. Now, reading your book is, is probably a good thing. So the 12 Steps and the Sacraments, Scott Weeman, W-E-E-M-A-N, uh, through Ave Maria Press, that's good. Mm-hmm. But I think you're... the probably the first one to say it's not enough. Yeah. So if someone either has an addiction that they really want to start recovering from, Mm -hmm. or they know someone who might benefit from inquiring into this process, Mm -hmm. what would they do? If if they're in the Diocese of San Diego, for example, what would they do? Yeah, well, unfortunately right now, many of our meetings are not meeting in person. They're meeting virtually. And so many local... It would make it hard for for new members, wouldn't it? It can, but it can also provide a little bit... I mean, there's give and take. There's good and bad. You know, there can be some different pieces of anonymity that people can maintain virtually. So not showing their computer screen. You know, they don't have to really bring themselves in, per se. Now, there's good and bad to that, too. You know, there is something about just taking the courage, because I see it all the time with people who are walking into their very first meeting. You can see on their face both, you know, fear, an incredible amount of fear, this kind of how did things ever get to this point? What am I going to what am I doing here? As well as the courage, the God given courage that is keep moving their feet forward to take a seat amongst others who share a similar condition. And there is a lot of grace that happens in just that movement alone, getting out of your house getting into your car, driving, parking in the parking lot, you know, de- battling that I'm not going to do it. Okay, I am going to do it. God, please help me. Getting into the group and then being seen by others can be really is really valuable. To repent, you have to be willing to acknowledge that you did something wrong. Yep. That's absolutely and, right. And wrong doesn't necessarily mean evil in and of itself toward you. It just means this was wrong. That's right. And I think a very important um, thing to note is that the presence of an addiction in one's life is not a moral referendum of that life. 
It is not a moral issue. Well said. Yeah. And it's so, you know, we, we don't need to place judgment on, you know, good or bad. It is what it is. And so let's be honest with ourselves. Let's cut through all this denial um, that has kept us from seeking a solution and recognize that there is a God and it's not me. And try to conform my will one day at a time to that of God's. And the only way that I've found to do that is by putting myself in fellowship with others who have been in a similar situation, who have walked a path that I've walked and who are continuing to walk that path and show me what they've done, you know, share through very humble and honest sharing experience strength and hope that gives me the tools where I don't need to reach to these cheap coping mechanisms in order to deal with whatever life is throwing at me that day. Now, if someone wants to form a group in their parish, say here Mm -hmm. in the Diocese of Orange or something like that, what would they need to do? Yeah, we've got on on our website, there is a... uh, The website again is... CatholicInRecovery.com. Okay. You can go to find a meeting. We've got our full meeting directory available on that site, both okay. local in-person meetings as well as virtual meetings. Okay. And people, we've got people from all over the world that attend our virtual meetings. Okay. We have an every day, Monday through Sunday, a no, variety of problem meetings. with Zoom bombing. You're not I haven't people. had any problems with that. Oh, yet. that's so good. Um, we've got some security measures to keep that from happening. Okay. And family members too. You know, oftentimes it's family members who reach out to us trying to find what do I do with my loved one, my son, my husband, my daughter, my wife, my dad, my mom, my cousin, whoever it might be, I, I you know, recognizing that they too are powerless yeah. over the addiction. And so we've got groups available for family members and friends of loved ones who, um, who struggle with an addiction. They meet, those groups meet um, virtually on Wednesdays and Fridays, and there are a few family and friends groups throughout the country as well that people can find in person or local virtual groups. But our Catholic and Recovery meetings, we, we formatted similar to a 12-step group. However, we do we launch into open discussion by um, overlapping Scripture from the upcoming Sunday's Mass readings well, with recovery principles and liturgical themes. Okay. And that just gives us a place to kind of really stay rooted in Scripture, stay rooted in you know what's kind of going on with the, with, in the liturgical calendar while giving flexibility and freedom for people to share honestly and openly. So let me back up for a moment. You were a very promising young man who... Screwed up somewhere along the line with your first drink at 17, and it went downhill from there. So it's kind of hard to hold the young man in front of us responsible to that whole 17-year-old. Hmm. What seven? Who wants a 17-year-old to determine the rest of their life? But so much of it really is. Okay, beyond mm-hmm. us now. Yeah. And you weren't able to recover until you got involved with the 12-step, which got you to acknowledge that this is beyond you. You need God's help. Mm-hmm. And so in response, as you've been healing, you help create a ministry now that reaches out to hundreds and thousands of other people throughout the world, really, but throughout San Diego and Southern California, especially. Wow. Mm -hmm. Scott, what a wonderful ministry, and I'm so glad that you've been able to share that with us today. God bless you on your recovery every day. Yeah, thank you. And God bless you on your family, especially as you have your new little one growing. Yes, uh, someday you can look back on this podcast and <laughs> and say, oh, yeah, that's when you were still baking in the oven. <laughs> Scott, if you would be so kind, especially for the people who are listening, who are struggling, mm-hmm. would you please lead us in a word of prayer? Yes, absolutely. And so let us just recognize the presence of God with us right here as we where we are, wherever our feet are, two feet are planted. And let us begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, you are you are good. You are the master of the universe, and you are our creator. And you've given us the gift of life. We might have um, spent time squandering that life, or you know, in our in our perception, not making the most of it. But each day is a new day, Lord. 
and you give us an opportunity to return to you, to repent, to set aside the things that keep us separate from you, and um, to come back to you. And you have arms wide open for us, Lord. So let us, as we're listening today, those of us, if we are struggling with some kind of an addiction or an attachment or a compulsion that we can't seem to get over ourselves, Lord, grant us the humility um, to seek another person, to seek others um, who might be able to guide us and show us the face of Christ. Lord, thank you so much for the journey you've put us on. If we are or aren't where we want to be, we are here in your hands. So guide us, direct us. We love you very much. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wow. Scott Weeman, I want to thank you very much for coming in and for sharing with us such personal but important insights into recovery and for the ministry that you've been leading. You are listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today has been Scott Weeman. Uh, he not only has a book out, The Twelve Steps in the Sacraments, but he also is part of the ministry Catholic in Recovery, which is located out of San Diego, but is actually throughout Southern California and the world. If you would like to hear this podcast again now that it's been broadcast, uh, you can go to OCCatholic.com and you can go to the radio tab and download this podcast along with all the other podcasts that are there under our flagship radio program. I'm Rick Howick, your host, and we will see you again next week.